I'm with Christina McDonald, who I met first at the Alzheimer's show, and you may have heard her speaking in that episode of the podcast. We found that we had quite a lot in common, both having parents who were diagnosed with dementia, but Christina's taken it one step further and has written a book about dementia care. And she's also the founder of Dementia Help, which is an online resource for carers. So I wanted to take the opportunity to just talk a bit more at length about the kind of things Christina's come across and the kind of things I've found and see, you know, compare notes a little bit. So we are here in the middle of Hertfordshire at a country house hotel. And rather surprisingly, we're sitting in a car because it turns out it's quite noisy here. So we are chatting in a much quieter environment, if a little hot. (laughs) Grab those CDs, directions, the whole lot. My name is Christina MacDonald and I'm a writer and author of the book Dementia Care, A Guide and also the founder and owner of the Facebook page and website Dementia Help. So when you found out your mum's diagnosis, what did you do? How did you find out the information you needed? I didn't really initially. I mean, that that was the thing. That was one of the reasons why I thought the book might be a good idea because I really wish that someone had sat me down and said, you know, you need to go to your local authority and ask for an assessment of your mum's needs, which is one thing that people can do. Um, I did speak to Age UK. They were actually very, very helpful and they did explain to me that you could apply for something called attendance allowance, um, which, is a, which is a benefit to, to pay towards the cost of somebody needing help with care. So they explained that to me. Um, but really, I didn't know where to look. And I learned a lot of things purely by experience as I went through the process of caring for my mum. One of the things that I talk about a lot that I feel is, is really important to emphasise is that dementia isn't just about memory loss. In the beginning, that's what I thought. I thought it was just about memory loss. I didn't realise the impact that it has on moods and behaviour. And I think if someone had explained that to me in the beginning, my relationship with my mum in the early days would have been a lot easier to manage. The early stages when you're finding out and getting a diagnosis, for you, how hard was it to know when to take that first step to recognise something was wrong, but then to act on it and uh, try and find out what the problem was? It's very difficult in the beginning because the person with dementia, not on every occasion, but in a lot of instances, the person that has dementia or that you suspect may have dementia will be in denial. They're not going to be deliberately misleading you, but they may not fully accept or appreciate themselves that something is wrong. So it's one of the reasons why it can be really hard to get a diagnosis. My mum, for example, talked about her memory being poor but blamed it on old age and she was adamant that nothing was wrong and it was just a memory problem, and clearly that wasn't the case. Uh, She had vascular dementia, so she'd had a series of mini-strokes and that had affected the blood supply to the brain, and there was clearly issues with her, not just her memory, but her moods and behaviour and her thinking and her ability to make decisions. So it was about a lot more than memory, and it was clear that she, once once she'd been diagnosed, that obviously there was vascular dementia, but it's very challenging for people to get... A diagnosis early on and I think the advice that I would say is if you're caring for somebody and you strongly feel that something is wrong and they're not accepting it then I would recommend that you go and see their GP on your own if you have to and just express your concerns. So it can be a little bit awkward to have that conversation with the person um, just to uh, acknowledge that you've recognised something that they might not accept is there. Is that your experience talking to other people as well? 
Yes, because I think it's all down to how you speak to the person. At the end of the day, they're a person and they have feelings and they're probably going to be very scared and very insecure about the fact that they're not remembering things. My mum would say, oh, I can't remember anything. But on the other hand, if I got... In the early days, I didn't deal with it very well and I would say to her, oh, I've just told you that or you've just asked me that. Oh, sometimes she would say to me, did I just ask you that? She kind of knew at the back of her, at the back of her mind that something was wrong and that things weren't quite right. Um, so I think it is extremely difficult, but perhaps just saying to them, you know, I've, I've noticed that, um, you know, your memory's not quite what it was or, or she, you know, do, is there anything that you've noticed? So that you're not accusing them of not coping. And that's one thing that's really important. It's not, you know, there was another family member in my family who came in and said to my mum, it's clear that you're not coping and you need help. And she was very um, stubbornly refused to accept that. And I don't blame her because nobody's going to take kindly to being told that they're incapable of looking after themselves and they're not coping. So I think you need to be diplomatic and just keep having those conversations and keep trying to impress upon the person that... There might be an issue that needs to be addressed, but be as subtle as you can. At the beginning of your book, you talk about taking that first step and acknowledging there's a problem and getting a diagnosis. I know at that point I was a bit lost to know as to what to do next because there wasn't anything offered to me straight away or to us. But in your book, your very next chapter is about all the practical things you need to do sort of straight away. Can you tell me a little bit about those things? Yes, I think once you've had a bit of time for the diagnosis to sink in for you know for yourself and for the person, I think don't leave it too long. Get the paperwork sorted out. Look into lasting power of attorney. There's two types. There's property and finance and health and welfare. A few solicitors that I've spoken to have told me that a lot of people tend to focus on property and finance, but actually they're both really important and I would get them done as soon as possible. What does that mean you can do as a carer? How does that help you? Why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a legal expert, so a solicitor could tell you a bit more in depth about that. But basically, it just means that further down the line, in terms of the person's financial affairs, if you're if you're responsible for property and finance, then, then you could actually manage the person's financial affairs. Health and welfare is different. It means that you basically would be able to make decisions about the person's health, but this is where it becomes a bit more complicated and you need to double check on this but ideally you want to have the conversation with the person with dementia about the kind of care that they might like in the future so for example in the health and welfare power of attorney if the person has said that at no point in the future do they want to go into a care home and that is in the um, LPA the lasting power of attorney you have a duty to accept their wishes until the point where that might be the only viable option for their safety. So that's something to... It's not always easy to have these conversations, but it's really important to have them early on. It is possible to get them done when a person has been given a diagnosis of dementia, as long as the solicitor handling it is confident that the person understands what they're signing and what the purpose of it is. If they're deemed to lack capacity, which obviously could be the case further down the line... They, and then basically they may not be able to get it done and the solicitor will not go ahead with it if they're not confident that the person has got that understanding. I'd also um, take the opportunity to get the person's paperwork in order. Uh, I, I know that my mum used to lose bank statements and paperwork in general, which I guess we all do from time to time, but just make sure that you know where everything is. Um, you do also have a legal obligation to let the DVLA know if the person is driving 
Um, they may not need to stop driving straight away, but you do need to let them know about the diagnosis. So you can go online at the DVLA's website for more information on how to do that and just basically make sure that you know where everything is. How did you talk to your mum about that kind of thing and what sort of practical steps did you take with her? It's very difficult because obviously memory, short-term memory issues is a big part of dementia. Um, So you can have a conversation with a person with dementia depending on what stage of the illness they're at. And as I did with my mum, I probably, probably should have had those conversations a bit sooner. I had them in time to be able to do what we needed to do. But looking back on it, I wish that I'd had those conversations at the very beginning. Because there were some days when she was agreeable to what might happen in the future and she was able to articulate what she wanted to happen. And then other days where she'd forgotten about the conversation where we'd discussed and agreed what would happen. So that's really why it's so important to have those conversations early on. I think mainly I just tried to move mum towards the thought process of you're not going to be able to live on your own permanently. You know, there will come a time when you won't be able to be on your own and we need to start thinking about what arrangements we make for the future, whatever they may be. Early on as well, I would encourage people to start thinking about enlisting support, talking to other family members, talking to friends that you trust... Uh, letting them know about the diagnosis and just making it clear that you can't do it all on your own. You will need support and help in terms of managing the situation. Was that hard for you to do to build up that community of helpers? Yeah, in the beginning, I think it's really important to find family members that are reliable. And I had a couple of instances where there were family members who were well-intentioned but unreliable, and that doesn't really help anybody. Um, my mum's neighbours were really good, actually. She lived in a small village and there was a couple of neighbours across the road and one neighbour next door who were very happy to just pop in and make sure that she was OK. They had spare keys, they, were, they understood about the diagnosis and what was going on, they had my contact information, they could call me any time and vice versa. And they, they really helped. And even just on days when, in the winter, when it might have snowed and it might have been icy outside... They would nip round to the shops and make sure that mum had food so that she didn't need to go out and wouldn't be at risk of falling over and hurting herself. So I think it's got to be people that you trust and people that you know are reliable and have the person's best interests at heart. But having people like that that you can call upon. We also had an odd job man who was basically somebody who was the father of a good friend of mine. So again, I knew it was somebody that I could trust who... You know, basically we paid to do certain jobs, but we knew that he was going to be fair with the fees and that he would be reliable and he would go around and do some gardening. But he'd also actually call me if he was concerned about mum and he'd keep an eye on her and have a cup of tea with her and just make sure that she was okay. But there does come a point where perhaps you realise what you're what you're doing is all you can manage but it's not enough to meet the person's needs did did that situation arise for you completely and I've actually mentioned that in the book that you you may get to a point and probably a lot of people will get to the point where if you're working full-time and as a carer and you've got your own family and your own life what you're able to supply in terms of time and energy and resource and what the person needs may not be the same thing And that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you any less of a carer. And it doesn't mean that you don't care. It just means that their needs may well have exceeded what you can physically do for them. And that's ideally you want to start thinking about that before it happens so that you're prepared for the future. And that's why it's so important to look into options for long-term care in the future. But to do that early on, you want to avoid a situation where you're reacting to something that's happened and you're frantically trying to find carers or a place for the person to live or you're debating 
without thinking it through whether or not the person comes to live with you, without having the luxury of the time to think it through properly. So planning ahead is key. It definitely happened with my mum. I mean, we found her outside without a coat on in December and she was very confused and obviously she was okay, but it could have been very serious. So planning ahead as much as you can is really important. For a safety perspective as well, I mean, fortunately, my mum, um, and I'm rather like her, we neither of us were really into cooking, so in a way that took the pressure off because I wasn't worried about her leaving the oven on, but for somebody who has a parent or a relative who is into cooking, and that could be a risk factor, then unfortunately they will have to think about practical things like possibly disconnecting an oven, arranging for the person to have meals on wheels, which can be arranged through social services in some cases so that the person gets a hot meal every day without having to prepare it for themselves. I know it's unfortunate because it takes away the person's independence, but safety must always come first. Washing machines, I mean, that's fairly easily remedied. Again, you can... Well, I guess you could get them disconnected, but I used to I used to put a wash on when I went over to mum's and I used to uh, arrange for carers um, to go in and help us to do the same thing as well and make sure that everything was taken care of. It's difficult with things like TV remote controls because even for those of us who don't have dementia, they're so much more complicated now. There's many more buttons on them than That's there true. used to be. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes you think, God, I wish it was just four channels as it used to be. But you can buy um, remote controls made simple for people that have literally just got a few buttons for different channels and volume. But even that can be a challenge. Unfortunately, as the disease progresses, the freedom that the person has generally tends to change. And they are... It's good to encourage them to be as independent as they possibly can, but they are going to struggle to manage um, domestic appliances that little bit more as time goes on. So in one of your chapters, you talk a, a lot about keeping the person safe at home, but there's all sorts of little tricks and things that I I haven't thought of at this point about colours and patterns. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think anything that's overly patterned could cause confusion. It depends on the stage that the person is at with the dementia. But I've heard, I heard about one lady, actually, and this didn't happen to my mum, but I heard about one lady who had bathroom tiles that were white and black squares, and she thought the black squares were holes in the floor. So you can imagine how distressing that might have been for her. I would try to avoid anything that's too patterned and keep surroundings as simple as possible. Clear away um, worn rugs, frayed carpets, anything that could cause trips and falls. Don't have coffee tables in the middle of a room. And I think it can be difficult because particularly with an older person, they might have accumulated a lot of furniture and items and ornaments over the years. But trying to keep areas, you know, the middle of a room as clear as possible can help prevent the risk of falls. A person with dementia, and I didn't know this, but they may sometimes have issues with balance and spatial awareness. So things like judging a gap between a ta- the corner of a table and a sofa, for example, they may not have the same ability as a person that doesn't have dementia in terms of judging the space and whether or not they can fit through a gap. So the more space and um, you know, sort of clutter-free a room is, generally speaking, the better. Um, avoid stripes and anything, again, that could cause confusion and just try and keep furnishings as plain as possible. In terms of food, using a blue plate can be quite helpful because dementia can affect a person's sight. Um, They can have an eye test and the eye test could be perfectly okay or they don't need glasses or their current prescription for glasses is absolutely fine and up to date, but the brain has to process what we see. So it's worth bearing in mind in terms of a person navigating their way around but also eating food from a plate. 
So having, say, chicken on a white plate or a pale-coloured plate can make it hard for the person to see what's on their plate. So a blue plate can be a good idea because I don't know of any food that's blue. Things like that, little things like that can really make a difference. There's also things about medication in your book, about um, problems that your mum had had remembering to take medication. How did you overcome those difficulties? It was very hard. I mean, you don't realise it until it's actually happening. There there were different stages of it, really, because mum basically, in the beginning, it was a case of calling her and saying, remember to take your tablets, and she'd say, OK, I'll take them. Then it became, can you take them while I'm on the phone so that I know that you've definitely had them? And she would ask me to hold on and she would take them. But then it became, one day she phoned me up and said, I've found all these tablets and I've spread them all out on the table in the lounge and I don't know what to do with them. And that was a new level for me. I remember very clearly thinking that we can't go on like this Um, and deciding at that point that the only way she'd be able to take tablets would be under supervision. And what I didn't want to do as well was to say to her, OK, well, this is what this tablet looks like. We'd gone past that. So I got a safe. I put the tablets in the safe gave the code to the carers the tablets were in blister packs and then the carers would come in every day and prompt her to take the medication there were occasional days when she'd refuse and they can't force you to take them they can only prompt but most of the time it worked well it was quite important to just not let her have access to the medication unless it was under supervision which I I realize how that sounds but again it's coming back to that view of keeping the person safe In the beginning, it was just mum at home on her own and me going over there as often as I could, which was normally once a week, but phoning her every day several times a day and just being there at the end of the phone if she needed me. But as it became apparent that she needed more help and support, it was a gradual thing, really. Age UK supplied a cleaner once a week, then the cleaner became twice a week, and they didn't really need to be in there twice a week, but mum built a rapport with the cleaner and liked the cleaner, so it was more a case of someone going in twice a week for a bit of company that mum liked and trusted. Um, And then I brought in professional carers from a local agency. It's really important to obviously do your homework on the agency and make sure that they've got a good rating from the Care Quality Commission's website so you can have a look at that and check the rating of any care agency or or, um, care home for that matter. But basically I just increased the care and support that she received as the situation changed. I mean, it's a constant learning curve and it's, it is a treadmill. I mean, there's good phases and bad phases. I found it was a bit like... It, it is a roller coaster emotionally and mentally in every sense for everybody involved and particularly the person with dementia because they, in many cases, my mum didn't feel that she needed any help and support but it was apparent to me that she did. So obviously we didn't always agree on everything and that did make it very difficult. But... I did feel relieved that there were people going in there that I trusted to make sure that she was okay. And when she had meals on wheels, for example, that was somebody every day knocking on the door at midday to give her, you know, to give her dinner. And one day she went out and she actually forgot they were coming round and she went to the shops and they rang me and said, "Uh, we've knocked at your mum's house and there's no answer. Now, she was fine, fortunately, but it could have been serious. She could have had a fall. So those kinds of things are really reassuring when you're working and you're 60, 70 miles away as I was and you're not able to be there all the time. Did you feel obviously reassured by that, but was it constantly on your mind? Were you worrying all the time about your mum? Yeah, every every moment. Yeah, I, I didn't ever stop worrying about her for 10 years. I mean, 
to greater and lesser degrees, depending on how she was coping, she would go through better phases. We would get to a stage where it seemed like everything was ticking over and everything was okay for a while and everything was being managed and then something unpredictable would happen and you would think, okay, well, that's something different. So an example being one evening she rang me and I think I've mentioned this in the book and she was convinced that there were people in the living room, in her living room, that were standing around talking and drinking that wouldn't leave and she'd actually confused TV characters with real people. She was watching the TV, and I eventually realised what was going on, and I just arranged for a neighbour to go over and turn her TV off so that, in her mind, those people had left. But realising at that point that her reality and and genuine reality were very different was a very difficult thing to come to terms with, and I realised at that point, actually, she's not going to be able to be on her own for very much longer because things are changing. So you're constantly learning and evaluating all the time. It's quite a pressure for, for you as a carer. And I know it's something you've talked about in the book. How do you advise people to care for themselves emotionally in this kind of situation? I think a lot of people do feel guilty when they take time out and do anything for themselves, even if it's just very occasionally or very rarely that they do so. But what they need to understand is a healthy carer makes a good carer. So I'm a big advocate of exercise and I, you know, that means different things to different people. It doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym for an hour every other day. It can just mean a 20-minute walk around the block, going for a jog, doing an exercise class that you enjoy or going for a swim. What it does, it resets the brain. It doesn't change the situation, obviously, but it does change, in my opinion and my experience, your, your ability mentally to cope with what's going on. And I've used running in the past and I just found that I would come back from a run, even just a short 15, 20-minute run, just feeling better placed to cope mentally with with the caring role and it would just make me more more patient and more tolerable of the situation. So I don't think anyone should feel guilty about doing that. What about talking to other people? Was that something that helped you to, you know, let off steam? Sometimes, but I think um, it's one of the reasons that I set up Dementia Help because some people I spoke to, everybody is well-meaning. Most people just genuinely want you to be happy and to be able to cope with what's going on. But I also found that if it was friends who weren't fully aware of what it was like to care for someone, the kind of advice I would get from them would frustrate me because they would just say, well, don't put your own life on hold and you you need to live your own life, etc. But that wasn't possible to do that you can't just walk away from somebody particularly a parent that needs you and so I felt that kind of advice was not necessarily practical or realistic what I really wanted was to talk to someone else who understood who might be able to say what had worked for them so there's there's something in the book that you mention about um giving yourself a bit of a treat and thinking you were giving your mum a bit of a treat and you you took her to the spa for the day but that it didn't quite work out as you'd imagine can you tell me a bit about that Yes, I mean, it was well-intentioned and I thought it would be good for us to spend some time together and mum to have a change of scenery in a fresh environment. But what I didn't anticipate, I had a lot to learn at that stage of her illness, is that she actually thought she was in a private hospital uh, because obviously you've got people walking around in robes and she'd been for brain scans and various other hospital treatments over the last couple of years and suddenly she was in an environment where people were in what looked like nightwear to her and and that and she thought she was in a hospital so it was distressing for her um she also had a treatment she had a pedicure and she just she just didn't respond well to a stranger kind of basically you know, treating her feet as it were she got quite upset and emotional and in the end we had to bring we well we went to be staying overnight 
and she had to come. I brought her home a day early. Um, I think taking a person out of their normal routine and in an unfamiliar environment, it can work, but I guess it depends on the stage of the person's dementia. Mum found it very unsettling, so it's something that I would do and approach quite cautiously. It's, it's something you don't anticipate in a way because you think that perhaps the person being on their own, it would be lovely you could take them away for a, a holiday or a few days away and you're doing it because you love them and you want to you know, give them a nice treat and when it doesn't work out like that it, it can give you a bit of a jolt, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think probably the best thing to do is test the water. I mean, not everybody will have had the same experience and some people might have found that it's worked quite well but maybe test the water with a short break. Um, no long trips, no long-haul flights, certainly not in the beginning. And, of course, it depends what stage of the person's at with their dementia. But start very gradually with maybe a couple of days away in a location not too far from home so that if they do get distressed and there is an issue, then you can bring them home if that's what they would like to happen. So you sadly lost your mum last year. But looking back on the whole journey, do you feel that you did the best you could that you could have done more um I guess there's an element of I did I certainly did the best that I could and I know that deep down um there were times I think carers do struggle with guilt sometimes there were times when I could have been more patient I wish that um certain situations I'd handled differently in the sense of being more patient I became more patient. I wasn't a patient person in the beginning, but when you care for someone with dementia, you get very comfortable and very relaxed in the end, and it does take time, with the idea of repeating things. And, yeah, it does make you a better person. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. As long as you did your best and you were well-intentioned when you made decisions, um, I suppose there's always days where you think you're tired or not feeling well and you've still got to care for that person and sometimes you do resent that a little bit And but that's just human nature. It's, I think it's natural to feel that way. I think you've just got to do the best that you can and if you've done that, then I think you can look yourself in the mirror and know that you did the best you could under the circumstances. How did it feel writing the book? I know you said that you, you didn't feel there was help there, obvious help and, and guidance as to what to do. To be honest, I found it quite cathartic. Um, when people talk about writing books, a lot of them, a lot of people talk about the amount of time that goes into research in, in a non-fiction book, obviously. But it was like years and years of experiences just came out on the computer screen. It was, it was just a fantastic opportunity to be able to just share the experiences that I've been through and hope that they might benefit and, and be of use to other people and that other people might read it and think, oh, I've had that and I never thought of that or I, that's something that I can think about that might make the situation slightly easier to live with, I think is, is a great opportunity to have. How hard was it to do the research? I mean, you obviously had your own practical experience, but there's quite a lot in the book about um, uh, power of attorney and benefits you can claim. So did you have to do quite a bit of thorough research to, to get those bits the way you wanted them? Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to various different solicitors. I got everything checked um, to make sure it was all completely accurate and that I'd interpreted all the information correctly. Probably the most complicated thing, though, is the care system um, in the UK, and it's different in different parts of Great Britain. And there's also some regional variations as well. So that was the part of the book that was the most time-consuming in terms of making sure that 
the information was accurate, but also up to date because things can and do change in time as well. So I tried to give an overview of where, you know, areas where people might find help and broadly what the process is, but with the caveat that the process could be different depending on where you live. There's a really nice bit at the end of the book where you say that you were still learning from your mum even through all of this and when she was in the care home and beyond. Can you tell me what you said and what you meant by it? Yes, I think mum made me a more patient person and she also made me realise indirectly that health is the most important thing. Physical health, obviously, mental health as well. So a person that doesn't have dementia has got the freedom to make the choices they want to make and in the most part live life the way that they want to live it and that is such a precious gift and I know that sounds like a cliche but I really believe that and I think also I'd put a lot of emphasis on my career and achieving things in life and it's good to have goals but again my mum made me realise that that's not the be all and end all and it's not just about having the great career and all the material things that we put so much emphasis on. What's your goal now? You've, you've started the Dementia Help online, which is a resource for, for carers. I'd just like to grow the audience for that. I just really, it feels like a bit of a mission for me to really educate people and educate. I don't mean it in the way that that sounds. I mean, just really for people to know, to have the practical knowledge and skills at their fingertips to be able to do what needs to be done in terms of providing care for a loved one and also to feel supported in that process and know that other people are going through the same thing. We've got a Facebook page, which is um, Dementia Help UK, and there's also a WordPress blog, which is DementiaHelpUK.com. And for your book, Dementia Care, A Guide, how can people get hold of that if they're interested? You can buy that in uh, good bookstores, and it's also available on Amazon. So if you just type in the name Dementia Care, A Guide, and my name at the end of it, then it should come up on Amazon, and you can just order it online. Thank you to Christina McDonald for joining us on this episode of Discovering Dementia, which was produced by Penny Bell and Chica Ayres.